Well, thank you for being here today. It's, as always, a, a pleasure and a privilege um, to be here to open the Word of God together. So as we, uh, as we come together, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, the very end of Matthew chapter 5. And I, I really have enjoyed this passage specifically this week. It's the last time Jesus uses kind of the pattern that he's been using. The law says, but I tell you. You know, you have heard it said, but I say. And so he's gone through these different things where he contrasts the law, the Old Testament law that they knew, and then gives them a deeper understanding. The law says something surface level, but I'm telling you to take that understanding and put it in your hearts, and it's different when it's in your heart than it is just on the outside and on the surface. And today's no different, and so this passage will teach us not only what it means to love, but who we are to love, which tends to be different than who we expect we are to love. And to me, I feel like the Lord has shown love to me this week. Uh, as it happens almost every week, I come to some point in my study and I confess to the Lord that I am insufficient and I can't do this. And the Lord is always so good to me to remind me that's true, that I am insufficient and I cannot do this. And yet he is sufficient and he can do this. In my weakness, he is strong. And in my imperfections, his perfection is shown. And I'm always reminded of Exodus 33. Moses is about to lead the people out and God has told them, told Moses to lead the people. And Moses says, you've told me to lead the people, but you have not told me who will go with me. And God says to Moses, my presence will go with you. I will go with you. And what a great reminder that is to me that in all things, when the Lord calls us, he also provides for us and he makes his way known to us. And it's always a, a reminder to me that the Lord calls us to do different things. Today in Jesus's words, we're called to love our enemies. It's not easy, but as the Lord calls, he also provides us a way to do that. So let's go ahead and Go to the Lord and we'll ask him to, to do just that. Lord, you know that we in our flesh cannot love our enemies. We hate our enemies. We hate those who are not like us and who don't like us. And yet you call us to love our enemies. So Lord, we ask that you would show us what that means. Show us how to love our enemies, that we might become like Christ. Lord, as we open your word, we know that your word is sharp as a sword. It's powerful. It divides. It also rules. Lord, may we, as Psalm 119 confesses repeatedly, may we love your instruction. May we love your commands. May we love your word. May we heed your warnings. May we follow through on what you've called us to do. Lord, we ask that as we hear this today that we would search our own hearts, that we would not apply this to someone else who needs to be loving to their enemies, but to apply it to our own hearts that we would be loving to our enemies and see what that means in the context of Jesus loving his enemies, you loving your enemies. And we ask through the Holy Spirit that you would show us clearly how we ought to take this passage today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, 
Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that first verse, verse 43, you have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The law correctly understood was the former of that, to love your neighbor. Leviticus says, do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. The Pharisees took that, love your neighbor as yourself, and they said, well, if to love my neighbor is true, then it must be true to hate my enemy. God told me to love my neighbor, love those within my community of Jewish believers, and therefore I would also presume to hate my enemy. So Jesus kind of takes what the law says, what the rabbis are teaching, and says, you have heard it was said. It's not what the law said, but it was definitely what Jesus' followers, the people that had been learning, had heard. That was what the rabbis and the Pharisees had been teaching. And it's somewhat defensible. Like, I understand the rabbis and the Pharisees because for thousands of years, God had told them, this is the people that you are. To prove that you are my people, don't go and marry foreigners. And the Israelites wouldn't listen to God, so they would go and marry foreigners who would lead them into idolatry. And then God would punish them, and then they would come back to God. And then God would tell them, don't go and marry foreigners or it's going to happen again and again and again. And so now the rabbis are saying, love this community, but hate everybody else. And I think they're probably looking back over their history saying, if we love our enemies, if we love those who are outside, we're going to end up getting in trouble because we can't control ourselves. We start down this road and then we're in idolatry and God punishes us. So it's understandable where the rabbis and the Pharisees are coming from. In the context here, what Jesus is teaching is all about how to love our enemies. So this whole passage, 43 through 48, we're going to keep that same context. All of this applies to how we love our enemies. We know where to love our neighbor, but how do we love our enemies? And I know this passage is difficult for some people because enemies come in all shapes and sizes. We're called to love our enemies. We're not called to love some enemies. We're not called to love enemies who are just a little bit of our enemy, but all enemies we're called to love. And I know that means as you think about an enemy, or as you think about someone you hate, or someone that has done things to you, or said things about you, that you find it difficult to love that person. And I get that. I want you to know that it's hard to love your enemies. It's why Jesus says it. Anybody can love their friends. Anybody can love people that are like them. Loving your enemies is hard. If you would like me, Pastor Mick, and the staff, and the elders, and anybody else to pray for you about loving your enemies, we would be more than happy to. 
on your communication card, on the, your welcome card on the back of it, it has a little spot. Just if you, who you want to know, who you want to pray for you, just make it clear. Turn it in. There's a box in the back or give it to me on the way out. I know this is hard, and so we want to pray for you. If you have enemies that you're struggling to love, we want to pray for you. And real briefly, as we look at how Jesus calls us to love our enemies, I want to kind of take a step back and show how God has chosen to love us, who were once his enemies, and then we'll get into how we see that we are to love our enemies. So in, in your notes here, this second section, how God relates to you in love, we're not going to have time for that, so we're just going to cross that out. I'm going to read the first passage that I have, that God's love to us was unexpected. The last part of Ephesians, I think it's verse maybe four and five, chapter two says, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in our trespasses. God's love for us was unexpected in the way that while we were dead in our trespasses, that's when he chose to show love. Those two words, but God, two of my favorite words, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God, because of his great love, but God made us alive with Christ. God showed us love by redeeming us from our own sin. And now we're going to read that Jesus then says, go and do that to others. What God has done for you to love you, go and love others. Let's look at verse 44. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. The Jews understood that their brother, their sister, was someone of the Jewish community. That was someone who was a follower of God. Those who were outside the Jewish community were not their brother. They were not their sister. They were the enemy. Our enemy in that context would then be those who are outside the family of God, those who do not know who God is. Specifically, your enemy is probably someone who's offended you, probably someone who's done something or said something or been a certain way that you now struggle to love. The thing is, though, about our enemies is that our enemies are based on the perspective here that Jesus is giving us, that they are outside of the family of God, that they're not brothers and sisters in Christ. And the greatest way that we can love our enemies is to show them the love that God has shown us. It says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. To love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you are connected to the second part of that sentence, to being children of your Father in heaven. It says, so that... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then it goes on to say, so that you'll be children of your Father. The evidence for being children of God is to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Like most things, Jesus is willing to demonstrate what he teaches. Jesus is very much of do as I say and do as I do. You'll remember Judas when he betrayed Jesus. 
Jesus had been arrested and was taken to Pilate. And Pilate interrogated Jesus and they had beaten and attacked Jesus. And Pilate then stands with a known murderer, Barabbas, and Jesus and tells the Jews, hey, I'm going to let one of these guys go. Who do you want? Naturally, they would want Jesus because the other guy is a murderer. But the Jews shouted, we want the murderer. And Pilate was like, but how about Jesus? He said, no, we want the murderer. So the people, being all the more insistent, continued to shout against Jesus. And they shouted to crucify him. And Pilate said, why? What has Jesus done wrong? There was no answer, but they continued to shout that they wanted Jesus crucified. The people mocked him and they insulted him. And their arrogance, they shamed him and spit on him and kicked him and hit him. They opposed him and insulted him. And ultimately, they got what they wanted. As Jesus was walking through the dusty and dirty streets of Jerusalem, the guards around him, the Roman soldiers, would have been proof that he was walking to the cross, that he was walking to his death. And as Jesus walked and got to the cross, and hung on the cross, they continued to shout, they continued to mock, they continued to yell. Can you imagine being so hated? Like imagine that we in the church hate you so much that we would go out in the parking lot and build giant gallows. That we would build a giant gallow and then we'd tie your hands behind your back and take you out and put the rope around your neck and then ask you, do you have any final words? We're all standing there yelling at you, waiting for the floor to drop. What do you want to say? Do you want to claim that you're still innocent? Do you want to beg for a pardon? Do you want to look at your family and tell them for the last time, I love you? Hear Jesus' words in Luke 23. Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. See, when Jesus says to love your enemies, it hits deep because Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus didn't look out in the crowd and say, God, would you forgive her and him, both of them, that little girl, but not them, not that guy, not her, not him. Jesus loved all of his enemies. His final words to ask God to forgive you and I, to forgive us of our sins. When Jesus asks us to love our enemies, he was willing to demonstrate that he also was willing to love his enemies. Look at the end of verse 45. For he, God, causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. I found it interesting that God here is spoken of owning the son, that it is his son in verse 45. 
Not only does God bring the sun up to bring the sunlight, but he's also the source of the sunlight. The sun is his. Nobody earns the sunlight. Nobody deserves the sunlight. This is just what God does. For he causes his sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. This is an example of what's called common grace. Common grace is grace that is given by God to everyone indiscriminately. It's just common. The sun, the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous, the evil and the good is common grace. Generally, we, when we think of God giving to the unrighteous, giving to the evil, giving to the wicked, we're inclined to ask why God would give something, anything, to people that don't deserve it. Why would God give his grace to people that don't deserve it? The answer is that it's not based on the wicked. It's not based on the evil. God giving his grace to anyone is a demonstration of who God is, not who the recipient is. God giving grace to me shows that God is the one who has the grace to give, not that I have earned and deserved it. In the same way, the evil and the righteous have not earned it. See, Jesus isn't teaching a, an agricultural lesson about the sun and the rain. He's teaching that the evil don't deserve the sun. They don't deserve the rain. But neither do we deserve the sun. Neither do we deserve the rain. And if God, full of grace, full of love, and full of mercy, gives to those who don't deserve it, so should we give to those who don't deserve it. For he, in verse 45, causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. See, God actively loves his enemies. God goes out of his way to provide grace to those who don't deserve it, to the unrighteous and to the righteous. Verse 46 and 47 are probably two of my favorite verses in this passage. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same. It's a good picture here. Jesus is saying the tax collectors, they love other tax collectors. The Gentiles love other tax collectors. Basically, those in different groups, they love those who are in that group. We love those who are like us. That's easy to understand. That's natural. Right? If we're part of a group or part of a community, we're similar to somebody else, it's easy to love someone who is like us. And we also expect that other people who are like us would also love us. That's what Jesus is saying. It's ordinary. The tax collectors are sinners in Jesus' society. They're the worst of the worst. And so Jesus is saying, that's what even the tax collectors do. They love each other. They're sinners. They know it. But they still choose to love. So then why would Jesus make this distinction? For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? The Gentiles do the same. And if you look at the end of verse 47, what are you doing out of the ordinary? If you love 
like the tax collectors, if you love like the sinners, what are you doing that's different? What are you doing that's out of the ordinary? And Jesus is all about demonstrating unordinary love. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus looks at a man, a tax collector, and says to Matthew, follow me. The tax collectors are hated. Matthew is hated. And Jesus calls Matthew and says, follow me. Jesus goes with Matthew to his house, hated by everyone. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus' popularity had grown and everybody wanted to see him. And so Jesus comes into a town and a short rich man wanted to see him, but couldn't see him because the crowd was too big. There were too many people. So literally an adult man in a big robe, like a gown, climbs a tree just to see Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, come on, come down. We're going to go to your house. Also a tax collector, Zacchaeus. You see, Jesus was demonstrating to them that he's willing to love those that they hate. The tax collectors that they hate, Jesus is willing to love. See, in the Roman world, Caesar would tell the governor of an area, I need you to collect so much money from the people. The governor would get a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus and tell Zacchaeus, I need you to collect this much money. Zacchaeus would get somebody like Matthew and tell Matthew, I need you to collect this much money. The thing was that if Matthew collected more than he was supposed to, he got to keep it. And then if Zacchaeus collected more than he was supposed to, he got to keep it. And if the governor collected more than he was supposed to, he got to keep it. So everybody wins except the actual Jewish person paying the taxes. Because Matthew just told his people, well, I know I got to collect a thousand bucks, so from you I need 1,500. From you I need 1,500. And Matthew just kept the difference. Zacchaeus told Matthew, I need you to collect me 20,000, even though he only needed 10,000. So everybody was losing when they were paying their taxes, and these tax collectors were getting rich off the backs of their fellow Jewish people. So the Jewish people hated the tax collectors. And Jesus comes to them, and it's no surprise that he uses them as an example. If you just love your own people, what do you think you're going to get from that? Look at the tax collectors. Even they love each other. And you just want to love each other. What do you expect? Everybody does that. Tax collectors, sinners, everybody loves their own kind of person. When Jesus told them to love their enemies and gave them an example, he was telling them that their love must not be ordinary. And God also demonstrated unordinary love. Romans 5, 8. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not ordinary to love your enemies. It's not natural and it's not easy. But as God demonstrated by sending Jesus to the cross, and as Jesus demonstrated by staying on the cross, God loved us, Jesus loved us, and calls us to love those who are our enemies. 
that's not an ordinary love. Our love for our enemies is meant to be unordinary. It's meant to be extraordinary. It's not normal and it's not natural. But by our unordinary love for others, we demonstrate the unordinary love of God. When we give love to others who don't deserve it and who haven't earned it, we show that God has given us love when we did not earn it and we did not deserve it. As Christians, we tend to be known by what we're against. We're not known what we're for, but we're more often known by what we're against. The outside world, non-believers, unbelieving people of the world, what they know about Christians is that we're against gay marriage. We're against homosexuality. We're against adultery. We're against abortion. We're against alcoholism. We're against premarital sex. We're against, we're against, we're against. When we pray, we say, thank you, God, for not making me like those wicked sinners. I tithe, I give, I serve, I do all the righteous things. Two men walked in, holding hands, and sat down in church. I'd get a dozen text messages. Did you see the gay guys? They walked right in and sat down. They held hands, and they sat right by each other. If sinners only know what we're against, why would they ever come? Why would sinners come to a place that offers salvation, that offers forgiveness of their sins, that offers to show them that God is love if they only know that we're against everything they are? Let me tell you about Jesus, who is the friend of sinners. Jesus was known by what he was for, and not by what he was against. Listen to Matthew 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Jesus' opponents, they, this is what they said of him. Look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how Jesus was known. He was known as being a friend of tax collectors, a friend of sinners. Those horrible people, the tax collectors, He's their friend. Jesus finishes that thought. So like, this is what they said of Jesus. He goes on a couple verses later and he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We've heard that verse a thousand times. We don't always understand it, but come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Jesus is not talking to you. 
Jesus is talking to the sinners and the tax collectors. Come to me, he says. Come to me and I will give you rest. I will take your burden. I will take your sin. He's not talking to the Christians. He's talking to the Gentiles, to the tax collectors, to the sinners, to the unsaved outside world. And then look at the type of people that Jesus drew to himself. Luke 15, all the tax collectors and sinners, they were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. The tax collectors and the sinners were coming to Jesus to hear what he had to say. And the religious hypocrites stood over there saying, they're so disgusting. Look at the tax collectors. Look at the sinners. Look at Jesus eating with them. He goes to their house and sits at their table inside their house. Their complaint was legitimate. He does those things. He should rightly be called the friend of sinners. That's their chief complaint. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And I know that there are a couple of you right now thinking, is he condoning gay marriage? Because I know when he said gay marriage, like he didn't ever clarify that. You're so stuck on something that's irrelevant, the sin of someone, that we can't even see the heart of what Jesus is saying. Don't miss the message that Jesus is a friend of sinners. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable. He says there's two men, a righteous man, a Pharisee, if you will, and a sinner. They both walk into the temple. The Pharisee, the sinner, walks right in. He's super righteous. He knows all the right things. He walks right up to the temple. He holds his hands up and he looks to God and says, Thank you, God. I give. I tithe. I'm so self-righteous in your eyes. The other man, the Pharisee, the, or the, the tax collector, the sinner walks in. He can't even get to the front and he doesn't look up to God because he's so ashamed and he bows his head. And the one thing he says is, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Pharisee looks back at him and says, thank you, God, for not making me like that sinner. Jesus condemns the Pharisee and elevates the sinner. Jesus says in Matthew 9, for I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. But who? Sinners. Jesus came to call sinners. Mark 2. It's not the well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. I'm not condoning the sin. We are against the things that God is against. We're against sin because God is against sin. Jesus didn't go and participate with the sinners. He didn't go and become a drunkard and a tax collector and a sinner with them. But he went to them and he loved them. If Jesus were not a friend of sinners, you wouldn't be here today. I wouldn't be here today. We're here today 
because the friend of sinners reached out his hand and said, do you want to be my friend? Do you, a sinner, want to let me come over to your house? Do you, a sinner, receive forgiveness for your own sins? Yeah, the tax collectors are bad. Yeah, homosexuality is bad. Yeah, alcoholism is bad. Whatever. Are you, as a sinner, willing to repent of the things that you've done? Regardless of what those specific sins are. See, Jesus, when he went to Matthew, he said, Matthew, come on, we're going to your house for dinner, me and my friends. When he went to Zacchaeus, who was rich, he said, Zacchaeus, you probably said, you got a big house because you're rich. Me and all my friends are going to come stay the night. And the Pharisees, the religious hypocrites, when they were looking through the window and they were like trying to crack the door open to be like, that is Jesus sitting in there with the sinners. Did you guys see him with the tax collectors? How dare he go into that tax collector's house? How dare he go and eat with Matthew and with Zacchaeus? You see, the Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. I think the church at large, I think the church at large would do well to be known by what we're for rather than just what we're against. Because that is unordinary love. Anybody can be against things. Unordinary love is loving someone who is not like you, who is different than you, who is a sinner. That's the unordinary love of Jesus. When Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? And as always, Jesus doesn't only tell us what to do, but he demonstrated it. In John chapter 4, Jesus is leaving Jerusalem and goes through Samaria. He doesn't have to go through this area, but he chooses to go through this area. And the Samaritans were people that the Jews hated, like the tax collectors, but worse. The Samaritans took part of what God's law was supposed to be, and they twisted it. They worshiped somewhere else, they worshiped differently, and they took what was kind of Jewish and then made it their own thing. They were blasphemous people, and the Jews despised them. The Jews would not talk to them. You remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus was using that to shame them because the Samaritans act better than you do. So in this time, in, in John 4, Jesus goes through Samaria, and it's the middle of the day, and he's thirsty. And he stops at a well, and there's a woman there drawing water out of the well. Well, first of all, she's a Samaritan, so Jesus should hate her. Second of all, she's a woman. She's the lowest class of society. Thirdly, she's had five husbands. She's been divorced five times. She's living with her boyfriend, and the other women hate her. She's there at noon instead of the cool time of the day. She's there alone without any other women. And so this woman checks off all kinds of, we hate her boxes. We're all supposed to hate this woman because she's been divorced a bunch, because she's a Samaritan, because she's a woman. And Jesus goes to her, and for the very first time, Jesus tells her that he is the Messiah. He tells her, I have living water. You drink this water, you're going to be thirsty again in a few minutes. But I have living water. He tells her, I know about your past. She says, wow, you're a prophet. 
And she says, there's a Messiah to come. And he says, yeah, I'm right here. For the first time, that's who Jesus chooses to say, I am the Messiah to. To a Samaritan woman who's been divorced five times and lives with her boyfriend. That's who Jesus chooses. So she leaves her bucket. She's getting water. She leaves her bucket and she goes back to town and becomes the first evangelist recorded in the Gospel of John. This Samaritan woman that we're supposed to hate goes to her town and says, Guys, I know you hate me. I know you don't trust me. I know I've been divorced a bunch and my boyfriend's over. I met the Messiah. And he's told me all the things about my past, things that he shouldn't know. And they're all like, yeah, we all know those things. But he shouldn't know those things. And so she goes and tells the whole town about Jesus. So they tell Jesus, come and tell us things. And Jesus tells them all. And then they say, you need to stay here for a few days. So Jesus stays in Samaria for two days, telling them all about how he is the Messiah. They say to her at the end of John 4, we heard what you said, but now we know he is the Son of God because we have heard it from him too. Jesus reveals himself to their most hated enemies. He says to his most hated enemies for the first time, the Messiah that you're looking for, I am. That's who I am. And then he goes to the Samaritans and offers them salvation. You see, unordinary love is not us loving one another. The tax collectors do that. The sinners do that. That's easy. Unordinary love is for you and I to love someone who's homosexual, to love someone who had an affair, to love someone who is not like us, to love someone who is still in the midst of their sin, to love someone not only who's an alcoholic, but who's currently drunk. To love our enemies is to love someone who's done things to you and said things about you and caused pain and caused hurt. It's not ordinary love. And you can't do it on your own. You see, tax collectors and sinners, the world, they can love in an ordinary way because they're ordinary people. You, as Christians, are not ordinary people. So Jesus sets the bar higher and says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I tell you, love your neighbor and love your enemies. To love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you as they're actively persecuting you. Pray for them. See, the gospel is not for people we like. The gospel is for sinners. Jesus doesn't say, I came for the religious elite. I came for the religious hypocrites that I might make them more religious. I came for the Pharisees because they're so amazing. You see, the gospel isn't about how amazing and perfect and wonderful we are. It's about how amazing and perfect and wonderful God is. So when we tell our enemies that God loves them, we're demonstrating that love. We're demonstrating love to our enemies. Let's look at the last verse, verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Again, we're in the context of loving your enemies. If you want to take this and strive for perfection, be my guest. 
I wish you the best of luck. You'll never quite achieve it. But what Jesus is saying here is the word perfect has a root word that means finished. It means complete. It means mature, like a child grows up and matures into an adult. It has that idea of the end, finished, completed. That's what Jesus is saying is your love for your enemies should be perfect as God's love for you has been perfect. Again, Jesus doesn't just tell us what to do, but he demonstrates that. In John 19, after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now finished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they, mixed, they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. When Jesus said it's finished, it's that same root word, perfect or complete. See, Jesus had loved until it was finished. He loved on the cross those who were his enemies until the time was finished. He loved completely. He loved perfectly. And as Jesus loves perfectly, he calls us to love perfectly. In John 13, it says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. Same root word. He loved them until the very end. See, perfect love, be perfect, is loving those who don't love you. Loving those who can't return it. Loving those who will never return it. Loving those who hate you and reject you and rebuke you and revile you. Those are the people that Jesus is saying love when he says to love your enemies. See, the perfect love that God gave us was Jesus. The perfect love that Jesus gave us was our sacrifice. And the strange thing about all of this is it's not reciprocal. As humans, we want some kind of reciprocity. If you do something for me, you would expect that I would return it to you someday. That I would owe you and that you could cash that in someday. But Jesus says, I give to you freely, therefore you should give freely. As Jesus gave unconditionally of himself, he asks us to give unconditionally of ourselves. And the people that he loved were still his enemies. On the cross, we were still his enemies. So I want you to think about this. What does God's perfect love for us, what does the perfect love of Jesus require in the relationship with my enemy? When you think about your enemy, what does the perfect love of God require of you? And I'm not talking theoretically. I'm not saying, well, I think I should probably be nice to them. I'm saying, literally, what does God's love require of you? What would God have you do? How would God have you treat? What would God ask you to say to that enemy? If your love was perfect for them, as God's love is perfect for us, if their eternity were on the line, what would God's perfect love require of us in that situation? How does God's perfect love require me to treat 
my enemies. Let's pray. Lord, as the song said, we are weak and we are frail. Lord, we desire to love our enemies well, but naturally we hate them. Or those who mistreat us, we desire to mistreat. Or we desire retaliation, we desire revenge. Lord, we ask that you take those things from us, that we would love our enemies, that we would pray for those who persecute us, that we would show that your perfect love casts out fear, that you are love, that if the world loves us, there's something wrong. Lord, may we be people who treat our enemies well, who take the gospel to them, who show them that Christianity is not only what we're against, but what we're for, that we are for salvation of sinners, that we preach Christ crucified, that as Jesus came to seek and save the lost, that we too desire to see the salvation of the lost. Lord, would you give us opportunities, open doors, as Paul says, to share your good news with our friends and our family, Lord, specifically with our enemies, that they might see our good deeds and glorify you, that they would glorify Christ on the day he returns. In whose name we pray, amen.